Hello and welcome to Photographic Italian's podcast. My name is Alexander Erilaupma and today I'm talking to Jimmy Nelson. Last year we opened Photographic Italian with Jimmy's exhibition Homage to Humanity and from then he's become so dear to us that we could almost call him our patron saint. We caught up with Jimmy in his studio in Amsterdam and had a beautiful conversation about the current state of the world through the lens of indigenous cultures. We talk about dreams, rites of passage, shamanism, trauma, the wounds which we inflict on ourselves and much, much more. I hope you enjoyed the conversation as much as I did and be sure to check out Jimmy's work at jimmynelson.com. Did you have any dreams today? Today or last night? Last night. I did. I had a weird dream last night. Do you want to tell me about it? Very weird. Well, it's almost too weird to tell you. I, um, I was on safari and I woke up and uh, I was filming in the bushes and I turned around and saw a herd of elephants running over all the tents and in those tents my family was sleeping. And I walked back to the tents and they were flat. So it was a very weird dream, but that's a very unusual dream. So, the uh, tents were flat? The tents were flat. Okay. But, but that dream lasted very short, but it was very vivid. What do you think about dreams? What do I think about dreams? Um, good question. I wish I had taken the time in the past when dreams were very vivid to, as soon as I wake up, write them down. Because I think most of the spectacular dreams I've had, uh, I cannot remember. But I knew when I was having them, they were spectacular. But if you take the question further, uh, I tried to create all the wildest experiences in my vivid living life as opposed to my dream life. So I don't tend to lean on my dreams to fulfill my uh, fantasies. I try to live them whilst I'm awake. But do you have a view of what dreams are or the way that different cultures see dreams very differently? And maybe perhaps uh, based on all the different cultures that you've seen? It's a, it's a good question. I cannot, uh, I know what they mean to me, but I cannot speculate what those dreams mean to them. Because most of the experiences I have with these communities, we do without language. Because I try to travel without a translator. I cannot speak all of these languages. So the communication is very physical and very emotional and very raw and very naked. Uh, but there's a limit to how far you can get in that communication. To get into deep conversations about the context and relevance of dreams requires a language, a language I don't speak. Running next to that, even if I did have a translator, the chances of the translator managing to translate backwards and forwards the relevance of those dreams is very, very slim. Mm -hmm. And then I think you're delving into such a complicated realm that um, it's not an area I'd want to get into because the, the room for misinterpretation is very big. So I think it's safer just to deal with a relatively superficial connection rather than speculating on uh, the, the, the importance of dreams to these people. I think if it is possible, but then you have to be an anthropologist, you need a language, you need to spend 10 years living with them, and then you can better understand. Okay. All, all I do know is one thing which is very valid. The, um, they are very present. So it's all about living and about being here today as opposed to the future and the past or what they dream at night. So that's one thing I do know. Mm -hmm. In our culture right now, There are many, many very strange things going on. Mm -hmm. And people are very polarized and nobody seems to understand what is going on. And I think in many native cultures, I'm, I think most, if I'm wrong, you can tell me, they have shamans, right? And the shaman's role is to help people through very different uh, 
very difficult and challenging times. Mm -hmm. They give a, give a framework to mm -hmm. work, uh, mm -hmm. which to work through. Mm -hmm. And in our culture, we don't have anyone that has the role of a shaman. And so when we're in, an, in a time like this, people start grasping from like politics, from news sources or whatever, but everybody's very, very divided. Mm -hmm. And my question is, if we would have some, uh, someone like a shaman in our culture, would that maybe perhaps help us in any way? It's a big question and it's broad because you're dealing with uh, contemporary society issues and how we live and adapt and solve them. Um, if you bring it into the relevance of today, what uh, the world, and this is now global, is suffering from today, I think um, w the role of a shaman, which has performed... First of all, what the indigenous cultures are experiencing today compared to us is different. They're not suffering like we are, generally speaking. They're free. They always have been. Uh, metaphorically, there are certain governments that interfere, but they are deeply connected with themselves, uh, with the presence of being here now, with one another, with their rituals, with traditions, with shamans, and most importantly, with the natural world. It's a, it's a, very, a very delicate but beautiful, rich balance. We are very rich in the developed world. But it's not a balance of uh, uh, natural richness, it's a balance of material richness. It's completely disconnected. Uh, one of the biggest issues with what we have now in the developed world as opposed to the indigenous world, it's, not the, the f it's, it's fear of the not knowing. Um, the, it's not necessarily the virus. A few people die of, of a flu. It's the fact that we thought we were in control, we thought we were all-powerful, and we look around us and we're not then we question our whole existence. If you go into the indigenous world, the role of a shaman is to bring, it's not necessarily to have wisdom, but it's to bring that perspective of balance. It's to make them all aware of how fragile their existence is as a human being, how they are not allowed to have an ego. That's our biggest disaster in the developed world. And they have to be in total respect of all these aspects that I said. So it's not somebody with an answer. They are a mirror. It's more of a guide. It's not we go to the shaman to find the way forward. It's the shaman guides you to connect you, yourself, to all these different aspects which I was talking about. Yourself, your tradition, one another in the natural world that you live in. We don't have that in our world anymore. We guide ourselves as individuals through our ego. So that's more of the issue. Yeah. Um, and that's the disaster we've decided, we've imposed upon ourselves. We are our own leaders. We do not need anybody around us to guide us because we know it ourselves and that is the, the the implosion or the destruction of us as this is very melodramatic in the developed world running parallel the indigenous world is it's all about a balance and the shaman is is a, is a is a is a catalyst for that balance it's not about having specific wisdom or insight or religion generally speaking it's about a catalyst of balance mm -hmm. And the question would be, is it even possible with a world just uh, such, uh, so varied as ours is to have something resembling a shaman? I think you don't necessarily need to call him or her a shaman, but we need to have individuals who are leading the way in their view, their vision, their knowledge, their politics that ha is not based on the ego. It's not about becoming bigger and better. It's about guiding us all as human beings to be better connected. Um, unfortunately, the whole nature of our society is based on, on people striving and building their ego further and further and further. So at the moment, it looks pretty impossible. 
the people we put in power and are there to guide us, our shamans, are essentially politicians, and politicians are invariably never there. They sell themselves to get into there for us, but they're there for themselves. The worst examples are the ones we know they're daily in the news at the moment. Until those people who are leading society get off and they stop, it's not about their own ego and their own self-growth, and they're there for the greater sustainability of all of us on the planet, nothing will ever change. But do you think that it's possible? Because I understand with, well, hundred, with 150 I, people it's I, possible. I, I, But with I, think, I, think, people? I think the only way we will keep the planet alive and give it a chance to heal is to believe that it is possible. Today it's not possible. Today we are destroying ourselves 100%. We are on the edge of not being sustainable anymore. We know that. COVID is just a, a small example of that anarchy. It is possible to do that. It is possible to change, but we have to change as human beings. Yeah, so I believe 100% that it's possible. Today it's not because we, we don't have that concept. So whether it's 150 people or 7.5 billion people, those 150 people believe in sustaining one another, their community and the world that they live in. So as human beings, it is possible as a group until we as human beings globally see ourselves as a tribe, as one group. No. Mm -hmm. Is it possible that one of the ways in which we can accomplish that is to have rites of passage? Because I feel that like most native cultures, again, they have rites of passage. Mm -hmm. you, you have to go something, through something very difficult to mm -hmm. beca become a man and mm -hmm. then you're ready to serve your community. Mm -hmm. In our culture, we have no rites of passage. We used to. We used to have rites of passage, like in, the, in, in Europe we had military service. That was a very important rite of passage. I'm, I'm anti-aggression, uh, 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 anti-military, but that whole aspect of a young man, a young boy becoming a man, was a rite of passage, that form of self-discipline and, and control. Um, it's very, very important to have that, but how you re-bring that in in the developed society where we want everything instantaneously, where children of 14 and 15 believe they're adults, is quite difficult. If you go into, into the indigenous world, there's one beautiful story of rites of passage. In Papua New Guinea, uh, part of the world I'm very fond of going to, it's very rich with all its indigenous cultures. There's a group called the Huli, the Huli wig men, so the wig as in wig you wear in the hair. Their rite of passage is one and a half years. So every child, before it becomes an adult, has to go through a rite of passage of one and a half years. And it's magnificent because they, when they're in their early teens as a group, they get taken out of their village and into the jungle with a shaman, with a guide. And the guide says you have to come in with no clothes, no food, no protection, just each other and the natural world. For one year, you have to find a way to live and sustain in that natural world and look after each other. But the way you look after each other is you have to you grow your hair into the shape of, of, of a, a bowl. It's an afro. So they have to grow big, but the afro has to be shaped in a very, very particular way. How do you keep that shape without any bed, without any pillow, without any protection in the jungle? You do it by looking after each other. So you spend the whole day grooming and protecting each other. If you all manage to achieve that shape, it's a symbolic shape, you go back into the village, you've reached part one. Part two is they ritualistically shave off this um, hair, make it into a wig. And then they say with that wig, you have to go back into the natural world alone this time, not with people protecting you. 
and you have to decorate this wig with your own individuality. If you achieve in doing that, you come back, then we paint your face yellow, and then you're one of the tribe. And this takes one and a half years. Then you become a man or a woman. Then you connect to the natural world, you connect yourself, and you connect your identity and authenticity, you connect to the tribe, and then you carry on. And there's not one adult in that community that doesn't have their wig decorated because they've all been through that tradition. But that wig is based on respecting yourself, your tradition, and the natural world. But it's a very good question, a very good observation, but it's a very intense and big investment where you disconnect and you reinvest. Here, we don't make the time for that anymore. It's all about this instantaneous uh, creation of one's ego or growth of one's ego. Is there anything that could be, all right, like a metaphorical wig that we could use in our I think there's one answer that's the biggest and only solution for us in the developed world is that it is mandatory, compulsory for every young person at school to find a profession or a career, a career. That is all about sustainability. It's not about more, 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 further and further and further. It's about consolidating, protecting, and regrowing what we already have. So that rite of passage should be a child in their learning. They have to discover that profession for themselves. What is their passion? What is their interest? Is it collecting plastic from the street? Or is it developing something technologically that has to do with sustaining the planet that we live on? So that should be the ritual. So you as a child go into high school... And your journey is to educate, but educate yourself in what is your role in sustaining the planet. Not about how rich or fat you can become, about everything you can achieve. So I think that could be the process of a ritual, this idea of communicating to the contemporary world. This planet will not be here fit for human beings to live on in a few generations to come. And you have to save it for all generations to come. Then there's an immediacy, there's a panic. I also think with COVID in the last few months it won't really change anything, to be all honest. A few sort of uh, uh, stylish masks. It had to really hang around for two years full time. Then it becomes like a third world war. Then people suffer, and through the suffering, they make real change. Until that happens, uh, uh, it won't change at all. Yeah, one of the things that I've been thinking about relating to the COVID situation is that with rites of passage, the reason, one of the reasons why you have them is that when you face adversity later in life, mm -hmm. you're prepared for it. Yeah. And if you don't intentionally go through a rite of passage, it's going to come unintentionally to mm -hmm. you. And I, I think from your life as well. Your, I've, ha I've, had a, I've had a weird life. And if you also reflect that I have young children as well in their early 20s, I went through an, uh, a sequence of extreme rites of passages. They are not rites of passages where you would ever give somebody, but they took me off the grid. They took me out of a normal way of living and feeling and subsequently disconnecting because I decided as a teenager unconsciously to live To, to redefine uh, uh, my, my, I went off on a very, very different, subsequently a very rich course in my life, not materially rich, I will never be materially rich, but rich in content and reason for me being here as a human being. But it was a very extreme journey. But because of the extreme journey, I have such a fulfilling uh, adult life. So you are right. But how do you do that? And you, can't, you can't sexually abuse every child that walks down the street. You know. um, uh, but you are right. It's a strange irony. It's a strange irony. Yeah, and that, that yeah. was what I was going to add mm. was that 
because there are so many issues in the Western world that we have not dealt with mm -hmm. and we have not faced the challenges that we should have. We don't want to face them. We don't want hurts. to face them. And now the COVID situation is an example of an unintentional rite of passage mm -hmm. that the whole planet basically has mm -hmm. to go through mm -hmm. because we have not paid attention to the mm -hmm. things that we should have paid attention to a long, long time ago. You're 100% right. And it's a very, very good observation, but it wasn't painful enough. And that sounds very morbid. That sounds very black. That sounds very doomsday but until you really hurt until you're on the edge of the precipice without a parachute and survival is jumping and trusting your instinct nothing will change what i went through as a kid in my late teenage years i made decisions that are are, are relatively insane but but i had to make them to survive because i was at the edge of a precipice i didn't essentially didn't want to live And by daring to go to places you don't normally go to, you open up whole new realms of understanding about yourself and why you're here. Um, but I think it's a very, very good and very profound observation. Obviously now you live a very good life. And that means your children as well live a very good life. I mean... Good, we have to, you have to term... Uh, there has advantages and disadvantages. I live a, as an adult, a very fulfilling life. Uh, it is never constant. It is never finite. It can be over like this with a truck around the corner. I fall from the sky. Or, uh, but I'm, we say in Dutch, bewust, aware. I'm, I'm extremely uh, um, uh, in the moment of how precious my life is. So in that way, it's good. I've become aware of that, that value. So then it's become good. But to be so aware, to be so alert and so awake is also quite tiring for the people around me. Uh, because it's, you're, you, you feel that life is very precious and very short and finite, and it's very much today. So I live in continual stress, positive stress, How continual do you creativity, continual thinking. We had a meeting this morning for three hours saying to everybody, you think it's going amazing, but you have no idea. And I presented a hundred new ideas on the table. They said, yeah, but everything's fine. It's never fine. It's never fine. And they said, but that's the... So the good life is... is You're, it becomes extremely rich in experience, but it's not necessarily um, uh, um, Easy, a relaxing simple, life. Yeah. Because that way of coming back to the source, coming back alive, means uh, you're playing catch-up the whole time. And whereas most of us in the developed world, we become lazy. Ah, we just had a weekend. We need to sort of get in, have breakfast, do our hair, do our makeup. And for me, it's always immediate. I'm working seven days a week because it's not work. It's a, it's a mode of survival. So good is, is relative. I think it's good. I think it's the most becoming the most phenomenal life there is for people around me who don't have the objectivity I have. Um, it can be quite tiring. How do you manage or do you struggle with trying to give your children the adversity that you had to face that is necessary to live this fulfilling life? It's one of the most... It is today and on a daily basis one of the most difficult things I've ever had to deal with still today. Um, it's a very good question. It's a question I question myself daily and I struggle with and I often fail. My eldest daughter is 23, my son is 20, my youngest daughter is 19. And obviously they're different from each other. The females tend to be more, um, uh, we say, self-sustaining on the name and it's more, more mature than the male. On one hand, you want to protect them because you love them. But on the other hand, you have dreams, like I related to you a few minutes ago about things happening to them. I can see with especially my son, who I love dearly, he is very comfortable. 
He quite enjoys being comfortable and he's not testing himself. His question to me is, I don't need to test myself. My environment makes my life very comfortable. And I can see his potential unfulfillment later if he doesn't start testing himself. But how does he test? Do I test him? If I test him, he says, fuck off, literally. Do I let and wait and see him fall? And I know he's going to fall and hurt himself, but then I'm guilty because I could have avoided the situation. But he can only learn when he falls. So it's an extremely difficult situation to be in. He says to me, I left school when I was 17 and I have no qualifications since 17. He says, you're fine. So who are you to tell me? And I'm going, yeah, but the fact that I'm here today is a miracle and I'm not religious. In the modern world with everything being transparent, the amount of knowledge you need. And uh, so I find it extremely difficult. Other than to say, uh, keep leading by example. So I can't tell them what to do. They have to find their own course, but I try to let them observe how I live my life. So if I'm not drinking alcohol, if I'm not smoking, if I'm not doing drugs, I'm, I'm uh, and a variety of other things, you hope they, they, they mirror your own path. But I've made massive mistakes, which strangely they will also, also have to make. Do you want to name some? Mistakes? Oh, uh, a lot of the mistakes have to do being based on ego. Uh, when I was uh, younger, uh, there were a number of emotional mistakes, but I don't blame myself for those in relationships because of having come from a, a broken past in my identity through abuse as a child. It's taken me a, most of my adult life to understand who I am and what I could or couldn't be in a relationship. But I made I mean, an enormous amount of mistakes financially by being insecure and ego making bad investments, working with the wrong people, uh, making stupid decisions. Uh, but every time you fail and you crash, big time, you wake up and you listen to that voice. What matters to you? What matters to you is the journey that you're on. You go back to it. Every time you get back to it, you become even stronger, massively strong. Yeah. Do you have anything like when you're in a dark place or when you have fucked up massively? Do you have like... A, lifeline something that you think about something that gives you the drive to keep on going good question um yeah i um i love the light so i have a rule i get up every morning before sunrise very importantly every single day uh because it, it could be the last day and i have to celebrate the day and worship the sun as it rises and in, in, i live very high in amsterdam on, in a root and on the sixth floor and I have a roof terrace and i can see the sunrise and sunset And I literally have this worship every morning and evening. I pray literally to the sunrise in the morning. And that's also a metaphor for photography and always getting up and watching the sunrise. And, and I thank me for being there today. And I make my bed. I clean everything. And I make it all perfect. I like ironing a lot. So the day starts in order and control with respect. Then everything that happens thereafter can be a disaster. But at least I started that day with good intentions. If at the end of the day, the whole day was a disaster, I come back to where the day started with the same ritual in reverse to close the day, to be grateful that I'm still here. So you narrow it down. So when everything has gone, we're sending pear-shaped, and it has done on a number of occasions, not to worry too much about the future or why you've made the mistakes in the past, and narrow it down to being very present and in this particular moment and, and going back to very simple rituals, also uh, a lot of physicality, keeping fit. I love uh, running. I run every day, um, minimum half an hour, sometimes an hour. I, I'm physically active every day. If I'm working on location, you're carrying, climbing, 
building, if I'm here, I'm minimum one and a half hours a day active. Um, that's also a ritual. If you're physically in control of yourself relative to your age, it gives you a strength. So when the whole world is caving in, um, you get back into the endorphins and you get back into the physical rhythm. And if you can control that, then you'll be okay. At what age would you say uh, did you manage to put your life together like that? Were you always it's like that gradual. since you were a teen? It's or? gradual. No, no, no. It's gradual. Um, it, you have... The ingredients are all there. You feel them when you're younger. I felt them when I was younger. I felt what I do now, I could see it when I was younger. But every t you go into a deep dip, you, you, you get there in stages. It helps with getting older. It, it cycles, I'd say, every 10 years. Every 10 years, I make a very big mistake. And you crash. You literally hit a wall where everything is broken. And then you rebuild and you raise. And every 10 years, it keeps going like this. But the, you keep raising back to the source of who you are. How yeah. close are you to the next crash? I've just come out of one. So I've, hopefully another 10 years. <laughs> you mentioned before that you're not religious, but then you said... That, uh, I'm the, extremely spiritual. Yes, that was uh, what I was going to ask. But it doesn't have a label. Yes. So I, I travel extensively prior to COVID and um, I dip into a variety of beliefs and religions and cultures, all of which I think are valid. Uh, and I interpret them for myself with my own meaning to them. But they all valid. They all have truth. And I package this according to my... And I think that's the essence of what religion should be. But very few of us have the, the strength or the insight or the belief or the confidence to apply those rules for ourselves individually. So we need somebody to tell us. So I'm extremely spiritual. But it doesn't have a label or a uniform. And do you have, uh, with the exception of the sun worship that you do, do you mm -hmm. have different uh, spiritual practices that you do? Um, I think quite simply a lot of meditation, but the meditation within physicality, uh, within connecting with your body, connecting with the sound or the lack of sound, connecting with loneliness, connecting with being physical. But uh, in the winter months, there's always candles, often flowers, um, quite simple rituals, yeah. Uh, to come back no to, chanting. to come back no chanting uh, to come back uh, to what I was uh, talking about before, one of the other things that I find our culture and the Western world is really lacking is awe and mystery. Like these are the two things that have been basically mm -hmm, stripped mm -hmm, out of mm -hmm, our lives. Mm -hmm, but this mm -hmm. is something that the native cultures mm -hmm. they live in mm -hmm. awe and mystery mm -hmm, mm -hmm. of the natural Good world of, of yeah, what's yeah. going on around them. Mm -hmm. And this is again something that I'm wondering. What is the possibility or how can we bring back awe and mystery into our everyday lives? Make sure everybody gets up with me early in the morning and watches the sunrise. And if you see the power, the fact that every day it is different and the power of the sun coming up and the dark becoming light, that is a good beginning. That's what I impose on myself every single morning. Uh, most of us have no idea what a sunrise looks like. That's one beginning, and then you begin from there. And then within that, you get connected to a higher power or a higher strength. Then you can start connecting with your own awe and mystery. Do you remember or can you recall when was the first time when you really felt awe or mystery in your life? When I was quite clearly, when I was 17, uh, I, went through my, I went to this boarding school when I was seven. I suffered serious uh, sexual abuse between seven and nine. After the age of nine, I disconnected with my emotion because it's the only way you can survive. 
I, w- I was a physical body, but I didn't feel anything. And at the age of 16, with stress and, and the wrong medicine, my hair f- fell out in one day. And then I ran away to Tibet. And when I was 17, when I was traveling across Tibet, this is when I started to feel it. You're in an environment that is alien. Uh, I am alien. I look it. I feel it. I have no understanding. I have no idea where I am. It's one big mystery. It's one big adventure because there's no internet. There's no maps. There's no nothing. I have no money. And in that process of being so vulnerable and isolated, uh, I was I was on fung. I was gathered by other human beings in one of the kindest, warmest, most human ways that you could ever imagine. And that's when this awe started to materialize. Here I am, a complete alien to these people. I mean nothing to them, but they give me more um, human connection. Um, And that's when I started to come back to life to a degree, although I didn't truly understand what was happening because I was a teenager. But I remember feeling it very clearly. Again, this connects very nicely to what is happening in the world right now because in different countries, especially in the Western world, there is a big uh, problem with foreigners. People have very opposing views, Mm -hmm. but they're all very, very strong. Mm -hmm. They're all held very, very tightly, Mm -hmm. and nobody's willing to give an inch. But But, but, but it's not necessarily about being foreigners because that, that means nothing anymore. You look at what's happening in America. They're all foreign, in all honesty. They're all migrants. Very few of them are the original citizens of the continent that they live on. It's, it's again going back to ego. And the bigger the ego is, the more you need a fiance, an enemy, to, to keep the ego up. And the enemy is far easier when it's somebody that doesn't look or think or act like the masses do. So that's this idea of judgment and pushing other peoples and classes and race, races away. It's not necessarily black or white. It's based on, on, on the ego. When you disappear and you spend time with these indigenous cultures, they, what's very beautiful is they are not interested in what you look like, what you smell like, what you can or can't say, what you think. They're very interested in who you are. The way they can see that is the fact that you're there on your own and you're trying to communicate, you become very vulnerable. So you become very naked. The more naked you become, the more you strip away all these layers of fear and judgment and ego, the sooner and the easier you connect as two human beings, two bodies that need one another. Uh, they need one another for a variety of reasons, to understand one another, to have empathy, to, to protect and to, to sustain then when you've stripped yourself off of everything metaphorically and you're in, in teche, you're, I'm losing my English, in teche, sincere, um, you connect in the most fantastic way possible and you see miles beyond what we look like. When I was a kid, I lived in a lot of indig- with a lot of indigenous cultures. But before the age of seven, I had no idea that somebody was black, literally. I remember traveling to the school I went to with pictures with me and my friends and them telling me, Jimmy, how can you be friends with these people that are black? And I remember vividly, I didn't see black or white. This is his name, this is his name. Um, It's wild. So there there is a way to be with one another without judging. And I think the biggest judgment has become out out of fear. Yeah. I feel like uh, one of the things that um, has happened with the loss of religion and loss of rituals is that people are trying to grasp onto something to give them meaning. And right now it's obvious that it's oftentimes conspiracy theories and oftentimes it's just very strict diet advice. Mm -hmm, Like mm -hmm. these are the things that we have in Mm -hmm. place of religion, Mm -hmm. in place Mm -hmm. of ritual. Mm -hmm. 
Again, maybe it's similar to a question that I had before, but like, is there something that such a diverse world can find in place of those things to hold on to, to give them meaning? Um, I would argue, and I vaguely answered it a few minutes ago, there is one meaning, and that is protecting the planet. This is, again, speaking very broadly and very romantically. If every human being would become aware of how fragile the world is that they live on, how beautiful it is and how it can look after us. We don't have to do anything and it will look after us, really. So that's why it's called Mother Earth. The day that everybody wakes up and does that, that is the ultimate ritual. That's the ultimate existence. That's how all these individuals, they're all animists, most of them, these cultures. So they, they live and worship the world, the natural world that's in and around them. Their whole life dictates to the rhythm of the natural world. We have no idea what that means. We have no idea what that means. It should be in service to us. And when it rains, it's wet. It's all in our way because we're in control. So I think that this is the, the broadest way to solve it and the simplest way to solve it is you submit to the natural world and the rhythm of the natural world, then it will protect you. Then you have the, the perfect reason to live because what you're doing is you're, you're creating a safe haven for all the, your children and all the generations to come. If ever there was a purpose, that's the purpose. And it should be about us as a whole, as humans, not as an individual. And all these indigenous cultures, it's not about, it's all about a group. It's not about an individual. And that's the big difference. Where do you think the division happened? Like, why have we forgotten that? Why don't we know that? And why is there are still so many people who see the natural world as the enemy? Like, it's, it's dangerous, you shouldn't be there. Like, because because not, as, as, we, as we, we progress and we're, we're under the illusion, again, based, it's all based on ego, that we need to distance ourselves from it, that it's an enemy. The more you distance yourself from it, the more it's a threat. Um, good question. It goes back a long, long time and time into sort of industrialization and, and human beings leaving the daily contact with the earth. And believing, because of ego, you're going to become better and better and better than the other human beings around you. And in that process, you disconnect from it. But it obviously goes back hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of generations. I don't know how, until the world, the, the natural world, slaps back, which it's trying now to do, I don't, I don't know how you will change it. Hence why whatever did happen now and will happen again has to be much more severe um, um, my grandmother, this is a bit of a side story, she lived in London during the Second World War in the Blitz. And she says still today, uh, she's still alive, she's 99, that uh, her happiest time in her life was during the Second World War because everybody was a community, everybody was together, everybody had purpose, everybody had survival. And weirdly, everybody was dying and everybody was being bombed, but there was a reason to live. There was a survival. It was immediate. It was about today. It was about preservation. And uh, she said it was the richest period of her life, although everybody was living on this, the, the throes of death. We are so far removed from that here, so much so that we're trying to, we believe we can actually almost even avoid death. We're not humble. Do you know who Sebastian Junger is? Yeah, I know. Well, I don't know him personally, but I, I read, I've read a lot of his books. Yes. I really enjoyed his TED Talk. Yes. He has a very good book he wrote on. It's called The Tribe. Exactly. And that's where yeah. he talks yeah. about the same yeah, thing, yeah, yeah. that with so many yeah. people who have gone through famines, war, uh, migrations, it's the happiest time of their lives. Because this look, is he, a time he, when you have to care for those around you. He and his you. TED Talk was amazing. He was in, in Afghanistan and he came back. They all went to the PCST. He was older. He's my age, I think. He came out of it, but he suffered. The other soldiers were in their teens. 
he analyzed them all and he gave them a choice. I, option one or two, spend the rest of your life in North America or one day back in Afghanistan. And they all chose one day because they said that one day will be richer than a life in purgatory, a life with no purpose and no reason to live. And I think that's also this, this overconsumption and creation of the most biggest ego on the planet, which is North America, has given everybody no purpose. There's absolutely no purpose, and that's why it's imploding. Yeah, yeah. and when listening to him, one of the things I've uh, thought before is the fact that um, it's one of the most beautiful uh, impulse that human beings have, is to care for those around mm-hmm. us. Mm-hmm. And in the last century at least, but probably before that as well, but in the last century, very, very strongly, politicians and businessmen have used that most beautiful impulse to make people go to war. Because mm-hmm. when they go to war, they don't go to war for their country. They mm-hmm. go for their brothers who are mm-hmm. next to them. Mm-hmm. And the reason why they go back, even mm-hmm. if they have PTSD, mm-hmm. is because they want to be next to their brothers. Yeah, yeah. They want to mm-hmm. serve them. They mm-hmm. don't want to let them down. Mm-hmm. And we use the most beautiful thing in the world to create mm-hmm. the most horrendous thing or in the world. Destruction. Yeah. yeah. yeah but, I mean, that was the abuse of it because the creation of war for fear going, going back to ego. But it's a pity that the beauty, beautiful aspect of community can't be imposed in a peaceful society. Yeah. 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 But it, it, they're very good questions. They're wildly complex, but they're also so profound. And, um, for you, over the past, let's say, six months to a year, mm-hmm. what has been the thing that you've struggled with the most? Um, I'll be honest, and this sounds a little bit self-congratulatory. I've had the opposite of struggle. I felt a new flow. One, because I came out of a very dark period just before the lockdown. I had to resolve something financially within my company. I was working with an investor and it wasn't going very well. And I was struggling a long time to work separately. So I'd been in lockdown for four or five years. The outside world was unaware of this, but I was in a very uncomfortable place. What I learned and how I solved that set me free. That was consolidated just before the lockdown. So when the lockdown came, I was actually quite happy (laughs) because because it gave me a moment to realize what I'd been through, what I'd managed to solve. If I hadn't have had the peace of the beginning of the lockdown, I would not have been 100% aware of what I've been through and what I've learned from it and to make sure I don't do it again. Secondly, the lockdown here in Amsterdam was very moderate. It was called an intelligent lockdown. So all the big public places were closed, but nobody said you could not go in or outside. So I spent every day from my office, my home, my flat, coming here in this beautiful studio, going through all the thousands of books I've collected and never read, and uh, listening to the silence, and really enjoying the journey that I've, for the first time in my life, been on for the last 52 years, and concluding and analyzing and choosing and planning how the next, if I'm lucky, 52 years will become. So in a weird way, it was actually extremely beautiful. So nothing has actually been difficult. And next to that, if you're talking about periods of silence, periods of isolation, periods of lack of communication, periods of patience, I spend the whole of my adult life spending one and a half months sitting at the feet of a tribe not making pictures, not talking, waiting, waiting with no food until we make the moment of connection. So I have this very deep trust. So I didn't actually see any of it as a disadvantage. Um, I watched around me and experienced everybody else's experience of this complete fear and this complete panic and this anarchy, the fact that they're not in control. 
but also realizing myself for many years I haven't been in control anyway. Um, so I had the inverted experience. But at the same time, it's not to say that I wasn't aware of other people suffering. So other people were suffering extremely, whether abroad or here in Holland, uh, in ways that I could never imagine. So it's not to dissociate or uh, uh, disregard their suffering, but for me it was actually uh, the opposite of being difficult. I've always felt like... Uh, when that watch- makes sense. Yes, that yeah. does make sense. When watching your works, and especially when we had um, James Nathway in our mm-hmm. house, especially when watching his works and uh, guiding people through the, uh, through the exhibition, and so many people feel uh, pity for the people, and they feel like... I shouldn't be enjoying my life because these people can't enjoy their life. And I'm always thinking like if you were suffering, like these people are suffering in war zones, if I was suffering like that, Mm -hmm. if anyone was suffering like that, you would not want to people who are not in that situation not to enjoy their life, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. You, would, you would want them mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. enjoy everything to the utmost mm-hmm. uh, possibility. Mm-hmm. So I feel like it's, it's so oftentimes we want to feel guilty and we want to feel pity, but it's actually the exact opposite that we should feel. Weirdly, uh, uh, James is a, a phenomenal artist. He's not just a photographer. What he makes is art, the way he sees the world but he makes art of a very awkward subject. Uh, I think he's a phenomenal individual, and we all agree with that, and um, far beyond a photographer. Strangely, when I was in my early 20s, I visited a lot of areas of violence and war. I was nowhere near as good as James, and I would probably be dead by now because I didn't have half his intelligence. But I was in that environment because it was the richest environment that I could be in. I was alive, much the same as Sebastian Junger's book. I was a young man in my late teens, early 20s. I felt half dead from what I'd experienced. And by entering that environment, everything was very immediate, very alert. Uh, You were aware of the fragility of life. and, And that whole experience became addictive and extremely rich. I completely understand why he is today still on that path. A lot of the images that he makes and experiences that he shares look horrendous. But when you're in them, it's the most life-empowering experience that you can ever have. So it's a strange irony. On one hand, it's suffering. But on the other hand, that suffering brings you very close to the life source. So I would argue a lot of those people experience life in a far richer way than we will ever experience it because of the immediacy and 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 the pain of it. And life, a rich life, is both. Extreme light, but extreme dark. And we don't have the extreme dark here anymore. We just have a light or almost a fake light. And you have to have both together at the same time. Yes, I feel like our lives in the Western world have become so safe that they've become absolutely dull. Yeah, like, but we're, we're numb. Yes. In Dutch you say murf. We don't feel anything anymore. Yeah. There's no reason to, to, there's no purpose. There's no religion, there's no shamans, there's no guide. And going back to a question of you, there could be a purpose, and this has been melodramatic, save the fucking planet. That could be the most amazing purpose there ever is. Every single person wakes up in the morning, we're going to do this together. But until we disconnect from our ego as the individual, I don't know whether that's possible. And when, when you go into a war environment, excuse me, there is zero ego in the people surviving. It's all about how you, you, how you look after each other. Coming back to native cultures, is there um, like a common thread in which they see the Western world or how they see what we are doing and the way that we are living? Um, one, to, to bring a commonality into it, and this is, I always think, fascinating. I, 
I'm trying to return often with the work that I do. I take the books back and the pictures, and then we have a foundation, so we reinvest. And I'm always very surprised when I come back with the book and I show them, and they sort of look, and they're not interested. They're not interested in the pictures in the book or in other chapters. And they sort of, they say, well, we don't have cameras. We don't spend the whole day making pictures. We don't have mirrors. And if this is the way you see it as well, that's fine. This is your interpretation. But we know how we feel. We know how we feel and we want to feel beautiful inside. And that is through connecting to yourself, your individuality, to one another, to the natural world, to your culture. And we know that's beautiful. We are beautiful. So we don't need a two-dimensional, subjective interpretation of what beauty is. So this is generally a commonality. So there's this very unimpressive reason for these pictures in this book. There's a very impressive reaction. You came back. Jimmy, 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 you came back. That says something about you. And these books and these pictures, we're not particularly interested in it, about your spirit and about your source and about your soul. That resonates immediately. So that, generally speaking, tends to be the, the, the comparison amongst all of them. They this idea of being deeply connected with an inner beauty and power rather than external I am beautiful, hence... They don't have this egoic viewing oneself from the side. No, no, it's an internal internal presence with both feet on the ground or in the natural world of what it is to be here today. If you you have no medicine, well, they have natural medicine, but no artificial medicine, you have no, um, try to put it into right context, you have no goal that once you've achieved this and you've got higher, you're better and you're stronger. You just are. You subsist and you sustain for today within that natural world, and you can physically manage it. You don't need anything else. I'm sure it's beautiful. I'm it's, sure. it's immediate. And do you read Eckhart Tolle? Yeah. The power of na- that's one hundred. That's all he says. That's that's all. That's all he says. Yeah. Yeah. This the uh, power of now is one of the books that really, really helped yeah, but me it, years but and it's years for ago. Everybody, everybody. It sure it's, is. It's, but it's the simplification of this this being present in in this space now. Yeah. I'm sure you know of the Pirana people. Uh, and the Christian missionary who visit them, you know, the Pidana, they had this really strange language. That, there's, somewhere in uh, South America, uh, they they had this uh, language that they can just whistle. And they're just, no, 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 tell just, me. Uh, no. there was a Christian missionary who went there in the 70s mm-hmm. and he wanted to tell them about Jesus. Mm-hmm. And they asked him, Did you, do you know this Jesus mm-hmm. guy? And he said, no, I don't know this Jesus mm-hmm. guy. Did your father know him? Mm-hmm. No. Did your mm-hmm. grandfather know him? Mm-hmm. No. Then we're not interested. This is because this is because for them again the only things that matter are the things that are going on Mm-mm. around them all the time Mm-mm. and it's a very very beautiful story if I could only remember the name of the missionary Mm-mm. but it's the Pidana people I think okay. it's pronounced like okay. that the Pidana and they're very very remote Mm-mm. they have Mm-mm. a language that doesn't Mm-mm. map onto any other language Mm-mm. you know Noam Chomsky ha- he had Mm-mm. this. Uh, Uh, this theory of like the ways in which all languages are similar, mm-hmm. and the Pidana are the only language that we've found that doesn't map onto this. They have a they have a completely wow. different language, and they can just like. Mm. Did you see the film Captain Fantastic? Yes, I did. With see the that. it's very yes. good. The bit when he gets built anyway. Yeah. Yes, it's a it's mm-hmm. a, a good good film. Mm-hmm. But uh, these Pidana people as well, like for them, life is what is happening right around them, and they have an uh, a word for one. They have a word for two, they have a word for three, mm. and then they have many. Because anything that's more than three, they 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 have no use for yeah, it, yeah, yeah, no yeah. use for it Beautiful. whatsoever. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, yeah. This is something that just uh, popped into my head. Mm-hmm. With native peoples, they all have different. Again, like from the outside, they all look different. From the inside, obviously, all the same. 
uh, are there or have there, there been any whose story or whose way of life has been like the most appealing to you, with whom you felt the most connection or uh, that has seemed the most uh, familiar in some deep sense? The, the, it's a good question. It's occasionally asked before, and I'm going to give a more generalized answer if I'm allowed. Each journey is enriching. Each journey is an adventure. Each connection, although from before is not controlled, so an awful lot is left to serendipity, is profound and life-changing. It becomes addictive, totally. It becomes obsessive, totally, which is why I try to sustain it. But each time, what you're trying to do, you're not trying to connect with one individual or one group or one culture or one location or one journey. You're trying to align a balance, again, And what I mean to say is that there isn't one community I would commit to full-time that 100% resonates with me. At the same time, here in Amsterdam, it's not perfect here either, but it's a combination of all of it. I think what happened to me and the journey that I'm on, if you look at this, and this is a, a seesaw, okay? Most of us in life are in a journey of balance, yeah? So we stand with both feet here in the middle, That's the easiest journey. We don't have to work very hard. We know we're in balance, but we just stand with our feet together and we just wiggle our backside from side to side and we can get away with murder because we don't really have to work at that balance. I, by default, through what happened as a child, the balance completely fucked up. It was destroyed. The, the balance is not there and it will never come back. In a weird way, I've struggled for many, many years to bring it back. That's why I went to such extremes. So if you can imagine, it's a metaphor. Most people stand with feet like this. I have one foot here and the other foot here. So I'm in a continual splits. One foot is in the middle of Papua New Guinea with cannibals, and the other foot is here in Amsterdam. But both are valid. Both are important. There are aspects of this culture here which are beautiful for the developed world. It's not perfect. But I can only understand that, see that, or feel that when I have objectivity. There's one moment when I leave and I look back at where I've come and I go, isn't it beautiful? But with a full excitement and anticipation to go on the journey to here. And then when I get here, I completely forget until it becomes subjective. And I can't wait to get back to re-understand the beauty of what I've just been through and align it with here. So the, best, the place I'm happiest in being is here. This is the culture, this is the community, this is the place. But that often only lasts about 10 minutes. It's in the middle of the night. It's often in a plane uh, during a journey of 13 hours when you're traveling from one end of the world to the other. But it always happens because it's the, the finite moment of objectivity where I completely appreciate the adventure I've had and can't wait to come back here. And it's the moment of total objectivity of both worlds. And, and the... And, and the utter respect and love and appreciation of the being in Papua New Guinea, but realizing it wasn't per perfect. There were aspects that missed. They're here, but also vice versa. When I get here, aspects of which are not here, which are there, so I can't wait to get back to here. So that's why continually we call it, in Dutch, this is a vip vop, a seesaw. So I seesaw from both worlds continually to get into that moment in the middle, that balance. For me, it's extreme because my legs were split. That's the culture, the place, the time that I, resonates most with me, and that's being with me in silence, feeling, connecting, thinking in the now. So weirdly, the last four months, I've been here a lot 
because it's this complete silence of resonating everything that I've been experiencing here and understanding everything that is here. Does that, does that make sense? It does make sense. So it's a, very, it's a personal, so I can't, I'm never going to look like you. I'm never going to dress like you, believe like you, or eat like you, or hear. I am going to look like myself, eat like myself, believe in myself, and feel myself. So it's a very, very personal, almost selfish experience. We spend the whole time projecting and delegating to the other, and we're not connecting with, with, the, with the internal. So that's, for me, where I'm happiest, is those 10 minutes, very short, very fleeting, but, and it's a, it's a, it's, you're always looking for it because it's never constant. That's the truest moment of happiness where I feel at, it's quiet, everybody's asleep, it's dark. You look out at the earth, out of the window, you can see the stars, the earth is round, you go, wow, I'm nothing. I'm nothing. I'm just, if I'm lucky, I could even be one of the stars. But wow, I'm aware. And you send such bewusst from the life I'm leading and the two worlds that I continually vip up in and out of. What I take from that is you're not going to ever be completely happy sitting in one place and you're not going to find peace that way. But what you might find if you work hard is being at peace with the chaos that is going on around you. Also, you are never finitely, permanently happy. It's always a zugtoch, it's always a journey. It's always very fleeting moments, this idea that when I get there, I am happy. I will never get there. It doesn't exist. Also, it's, you put it in context, if you take it right down to, to the, 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 the ultimate picture I'm trying to make, which I have not made and I probably never will make. But once you accept that, that's heaven on earth, because the journey's got to go. And that, that, that is ultimate happiness. This is the journey I have to go on. Better understanding why you're on that journey, and it's never complete. Then it's thrilling. Then you wake up every morning before the sun rising. <gasps> I've got one more day. Can't wait. And it doesn't matter where you are or how you are. It's beautiful. So if you're in lockdown in Amsterdam, it's beautiful. If it's in the middle of Papua New Guinea in a storm surrounded by cannibals, it's beautiful because I've got one more day. Do you remember when you made peace with that? I'm not making peace that, with it, but I'm, I'm, accepting I'm, begi- it, I'm beginning to. I'm beginning to. One and a half years ago, when I broke off, stopped a relationship, I was deeply, 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 deeply in love with somebody. And I've never been in love before, even though I was married for 23 years before that. And I broke the relationship off because I realized that what I was being given was so profound and so much, and I couldn't make it reciprocal. I couldn't give back what I was being given. And the only true love you will ever find is yourself. That sounds very idle or self-congratulatory, and it's, and it's quite a lonely realization that until you've completely loved yourself and you're happy with yourself and you're fulfilled with your own mind and your own voices and your own journey, then you will never be in a position to be in a a healthy, balanced relationship with another human being. So this was about one and a half years ago, the realization that you have to go to the deepest, loneliest place, even though you've been presented the definitive love, and then it began to, to, to click with me. It's not that you can't be in a relationship in the future, but you have to be so centered, so aware of who you are as an individual before you can have a proper relationship with somebody else. Mm-hmm. Does that mm-hmm. make sense? Uh, it absolutely so does. So for me, that was... But when I broke the relationship, I felt I was cutting off my arm and severing her because I will never, I will never meet her again. Uh, but I couldn't give her what she was giving me because I wasn't ready. Because I'm not 100% comfortable with this balance yet. But I can see it and I'm aware of it and I'm feeling it and I'm trying to focus in on it. And only when I'm there... 
can I give as much as I'm receiving? Maybe that journey is too very extreme because of the lack of love or self-loathing I had for myself as a human being when I was younger. Most of us don't have that, those scars. So, yeah, come on, you can be my partner and we'll live happily ever after. When you've had to come from such a far extreme to find that piece of self-love and respect, um, it tends to take a lot longer. Can you tell me of a different uh, time or period in your life Maybe it has, I hope it has happened in the last few years, last five years, last ten years at least, when you've had to really change your mind about something. When you've had a, st- a strong opinion about something and you've realized that you were not right. Or, or that your view expanded. My view is expanding every day. I had a very beautiful experience um, three weeks ago here when I was proved wrong. We work here with nine people. It's a very beautiful little company. Other than Peter, majority of them are almost half my age. They're all women. They're all strong. They're all powerful. They're all independent. They're all intelligent. And they're all self-entrepreneurial. But often, also because of COVID, there was, we were working a lot from home and there wasn't this feeling of community. And uh, I thought, we're going to gather all of us and we're going to spend a weekend together. Uh, so we went cycling uh, on Thursday till Sunday. We cycled up to Northern Holland all together and we rented a house and the whole idea was to reconnect. And I had a very structured process for it, this idea of reconnection and basic things like uh, cooking and connecting and cycling and talking. And then on the first two evenings, uh, I wanted to have this sort of communal uh, conversation and I wanted to structure it. And the first evening, one of the, the wisest women here, they wanted to play games, childish games, which I thought were very superficial. And I was going, yeah, but I'm not spending this money and this time to play stupid games. And the wisest woman here, who's half my age, she said, let this evolve. This is part of the process. And I didn't understand. So I was being confronted. Yeah, but we've made a time. Everybody knows we're going to talk. So the first night went. Everybody was very open emotionally, but not personally. Lots of emotion, yelling, but in a context of a game. Nothing was shared. And I thought, evening number two, tonight's the night we're going to get into the depth of how we reconnect with each other. The game started again. The same lady looked at me and she went, let this happen. And I began to get uncomfortable. Ah, this, I'm not spending a weekend playing childish games with girls. Don't worry, they're not, I mean, just superficial games. Strangely, on the last morning, we were having breakfast. I would wake up again every morning before the sunrise. I decorated the breakfast table in a ritual with pancakes. And everybody sat around the table. And within one second, there were tears. And for three hours, everybody cried around the table. And what was, it, uh, was achieved was what I was trying to force in the previous evenings. But only when people were comfortable only when they were feeling open, when they'd seen each other's characters in the game role-playing, did they feel safe to share what I wanted them all to share. So here I am at the age of 52, still pushing what I want to happen. And no matter how much wisdom or experience I've had, I'm still being taught by people half my age to learn and appreciate and do things in a different way. And everything I was looking for came organically, but not from me, from the natural uh, communion of of the group. Again, this is something so much mirroring what is happening in the world today mm-hmm. because we have so many older people mm-hmm. who are, have been stuck in their ways for decades. Do you think 
for older people, 60 years old, 70 years old, maybe even older, there is a way how they can reconnect with being open to being wrong? Well, if we're not seen to be all wrong now, uh, but I don't believe anybody will own that, take ownership of what the mistakes we've all made. I organically do here because I've made many mistakes and I have, relatively speaking, I have an ego but a relatively little ego. I'm not afraid of people half my age having a stronger opinion or wisdom than me. So most of the people here are far more productive and entrepreneurial and clever than I will ever be. I just have the ideas and I have the dream. They facilitate it for, all for me. Because I've been hit and broken and know what it is to have nothing, I'm quite comfortable with giving them all an authority. I don't think most people have experienced that, that, uh, that, that feeling, that emotion that I've had. So very, this is little business is seen as an unusual business because there's a very flat hierarchy. Everybody's the boss of their own department. There's not really one person. Um, traditionally speaking, there needs to be a hierarchy, and often it tends to be based on, on age. I'm not, I, can't, I don't know whether I can answer that question. I don't know how you can change that, but it's a pity. It's their loss. It's older people's loss when you don't see the skill and the brilliance of her. There's, there's one lady here next door. She's, she was here earlier, Bob. She's 24. A year ago, she said, have you heard of Atelier des Lumières in Paris? It's, uh, um, you have to come, it's in October. Uh, it's a football field, factory, inside, in the middle of Paris, with walls 10 meters high with a roof. And they have art installations inside. And it's a three-dimensional experience for 45 minutes of 150 beamers with sound. And, and the previous installations they've used were for Van Gogh or for Klimt or very profound artists that are dead. And she said, I think our content should come into this installation. And I laughed at her. I said, yeah, first of all, I haven't been there. 150 beams of music. I'm making pictures. And she said, well, this is the way my generation would like to see this content. And then I was very rude to her. She went of her own initiative anyway. She contacted the manager of her own initiative. And he said, are you aware of the project I work on with Jimmy? Uh, because of her initiative, they've come back and we have an installation there in November. So despite me being rude and dismissive of her initiative, she went anyway because she believed in it. And now she's gained us and given us access to an extremely big uh, artistic event. And she's 24. Um, yeah. So I don't know how you will change other people, but uh, believe you me, it's their loss. Because th there is a truism in, uh, in science that no field of science can advance when the people, the old people who have made like mm. the big discoveries before they have died, because mm. always people hold on to the, hold those on. beliefs mm -hmm. until those people die, mm -hmm. and then all of a sudden new science mm -hmm. comes along, people have mm -hmm. new understanding and so mm -hmm. on. So perhaps it's it's the only hope that we have is that people get old and they die. Well, they are at the moment. We yes. just let them. Sorry, mass extermination. With, with the COVID as well, right? We have a lot of old people dying, mm -hmm. and those old people people if they hadn't died this year they might have died next year or the year after that but also what we've had because of the lockdowns is massive massive increases in suicides in mm -hmm. mental health problems mm -hmm. in abuse uh, mm -hmm. and so on mm -hmm. and uh, since you went through something very very difficult mm -hmm. as a teenager mm -hmm. if you could talk to the 16 year old 15 year old Jimmy yeah 
to give him some advice to get through these dark times because right now in the mm-hmm. world there are mm-hmm. so many mm-hmm. people like that mm-hmm. teenagers young adults mm-hmm. going through mm-hmm. very 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 hard times mm-hmm. and these are people that don't have to die this year mm-hmm. they don't have to die the next year or mm-hmm. the year after that and the only reason they are dying is mm-hmm. because they haven't had the guidance and mm-hmm. things that are going on in the world right now mm-hmm. are so overwhelming to them that they mm-hmm. just can't hold on mm-hmm. Firstly, I'm, I may be contradicting you. I was under the impression that uh, many of us are struggling globally, much more than a lot of us here. I wasn't aware that suicide rates were going up. I thought with this idea of, uh, I know suicide rates are far more than COVID deaths, which are still not talked about prior to also to COVID, is to find a reason to find a purpose that's bigger than oneself. And to going back to the questions and answers we had earlier on in the conversation, this idea of, of, of saving something, sustaining something that's much bigger, finding that passion, that purpose, um, I believe it's worth it. The world is phenomenal, the Mother Earth. It's extremely beautiful and more valuable than we will ever know. And if you can find one simple purpose to give reason to that, that could be a way of doing it. Uh, spending all day online is very dangerous, uh, not only even outside COVID times, because if you're not careful, you convince yourself that everything has been achieved, everything has been done, my life is not worth leading because everybody else has done it prior to me. The luck of my generation prior to the online world is you didn't know any of this. You, you, you went on your own journey. So two things I would say is one is to, as best as possible, disconnect digitally for substantial periods of time and secondly, in that silence, go on a very particular journey, even if it's walking outside and collecting the rubbish on your streets below to give yourself purpose. I've seen a few people here. I go to the gym here every morning on the corner very early at 7 o'clock. And there are a few kids who are every morning now walking up and down collecting rubbish. I ask them, what are they doing? Yeah, because we're trying to save the planet one piece of plastic at a time. I thought that was beautiful. And you start talking to them. They're there, we're watching the sunrise together, they get up early, they have a purpose. It becomes a ritual, they make a difference, they can see a difference. So no matter how simple it is, is to disconnect from that global fear and access to information and go back down to one very simple thing and bring it into that store of sustainability. That's very beautiful. I mm. just for, I forgot to tell you this before, but uh, it's uh, it's something that I really want to tell you because when we had your uh, exhibition up in mm. Fotografiska, every time when I did a tour for people, I cried absolutely every time because for me, I can mm. and I I remember I went there with my grandmother, I went there with my friends, and I and I obviously did uh, tours for all the visitors and uh, and clients and so on, and just walking through it, I can I can watch the photos, I can just uh, look at the photographs and it's and I'm fine it's just a very very beautiful experience to look at it but whenever I talk about these things it makes it really really makes me cry because there is so much depth and beauty in there just in those eyes of a, like a six-year-old girl from Mexico you know they have uh, thank you for saying this um, it touches me that you say this every single picture I make I'm crying when I'm making it and if it's a simple portrait or it's a complicated landscape the effort that you have to put into it to gain that access and that trust and that peace is, is, is meteoric. Uh, but when one gets there, the fulfillment is so big. There's a story, um, there's, there's, uh, there's one that was in Fotografiska, uh, a big picture under a waterfall in Papua New Guinea of the Kaluli. These people standing with these big white headdresses. 
the making of that picture took about a month. Uh, first to get there, you fly and then you walk, then you spend a week sitting and then two weeks making portraits and then three days walking to the waterfall. So it's a massive, massive journey. The night I made the picture, uh, at six o'clock in the evening, when I built all the wood, or carried all the wood into the river for them to stand, and the picture was correct. I couldn't see the picture because it was on film. We couldn't walk back to the village because of, there were snakes in the jungle at night, so we had to sleep in the rocks on the waterfall. It was one of the best night sleeps I've ever had because I felt safe. And the reason I felt safe was uh, because I had submitted I'd sacrifice myself to my feelings and my emotions, and that is to do, give praise and worship to the subject and the natural world that I'm in. And it's like conducting an orchestra. Uh, when you're doing something visually, it's the same thing when it's complicated. When, when a conductor has a, a choir of a thousand people and musical instruments and everything aligns and the thrill he feels in his body and with the audience, it's the same I have when I'm trying to make a picture. The more complicated it is, the longer it takes, the more challenging it is. And when it aligns and you get it right, almost right, it's never 100% right, you, you, you let go. It's a climax. And the night I went to sleep on the rocks under the waterfall with them surrounding me, with no pillow, with no bed, with no food, I felt safer than I've ever felt before in my life because I felt connected. But you, to get that feeling of safety and connection, you have to invest big, 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 big time. And I know it because I felt it. Uh, it's heaven on earth because you go to, back to the womb, back to the embryo, back to the... And I knew they were protecting me and I knew they would, they would never do anything to me there. And no matter how vulnerable I was in all aspects, uh, I knew I was safe. And that's perhaps the safety I've been looking for since my childhood. So that's why I go to such extremes of putting myself with these people in the natural world because that's the feeling of safety I want to feel. And there is a component of trust there. Cause, cause but it's, it's, it's all about trust. Yeah. It's all about when between the ages of zero and seven, I live in these worlds. Seven, I get taken out of it. The feeling of trust is broken. A child between seven and nine, it's, it's insane what they did to me. And then you'll never trust again. But if you want to be a happy, successful human being, I mean that broadly, self-sustaining human, you have to dig very, 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 very deep to a source you did not know you had. Otherwise, there's no fucking reason to get up in the morning talking about belief in shaman and everything. And until you start digging, and then when you get very, very, very deep, you, oh, you start to feel it. And that's what I do. And that's why the thrill of wanting to live every day and get up every morning is, is toxic. It's, it, it's an extreme because of the extremes you have to go to. And that's why every single pitch you make is, is a religious experience of worship. Um, and that's why it's relatively easy to connect and communicate because it's a, it's a, it's a life source for me. Uh, yeah. And this is, this is exactly the reason why it connects, again, to the mystery and awe that I was talking about before. Because mm -hmm. this is the reason why I, I cry. Because mm -hmm. when I talk about it, it mm -hmm. becomes so much more real. Mm -hmm. And you have so much, more, uh, so much mystery and so much awe mm -hmm. in that way of life and in the, mm -hmm. in the true way that you have managed it mm -hmm. like you have you have done it with your soul you haven't mm -hmm. just taken beautiful pictures you have put your soul into it and this is this is what resonates there, there is there is thank you there's a uh, i gave a talk uh, to a thousand children in a school in america last year and none of the children were interested they were all teenagers and they were all on their smartphone and you could only see the tops of their heads and then uh, one of the kids said yeah we don't understand why you make your life so difficult with this analog camera we all, and they used a term, and I think it's very cool, we spray and pray. 
with, with our digital cameras, it's much easier. Why make all the efforts? You are, is it because you're old or because you're weird or you're eccentric or you're sick? And I thought, it's interesting, very direct. And I said, well, so you don't understand? No, I don't understand. I said, okay, well, I'm not going to talk about cameras, but let, let's use an example. What's most important for you tomorrow? What's the thing you need? I need security. I need safety. But whether you understand that or you don't, it doesn't matter. And this is my way of doing it. So that's when I wake up in the morning, that's what I'm looking for. What do you want? And he goes, yeah, I want, I want a kiss. I want a girl. He's 16. I said, okay, it's a good analogy. It's, it's important. Why not? And then all of a sudden, the whole of the audience is listening. I said, why not? Tomorrow, uh, I'm going to give you two options. Option A and option B. And option A is you can go into your school square at lunchtime and you can kiss everybody. Girls, boys, cats, dogs, teachers. Nobody says no, and everybody says bring it on as many times as you want. That's option one. Now the whole of the audience are listening, and everybody puts down their telephones, so you've got them. It's all relative. Option two is you're allowed to kiss, only maybe, it's not guaranteed, for half a second on a cheek, not on the lips. You're not allowed to touch. And remember, this is not guaranteed for the last second of the last minute for the last day of the week. Which is your two options? And everybody starts screaming, yeah, and there's noise, yeah, we go for option one. And, goes, and, and, is, you, and I said, well, I go for option two. And he, yeah, of course you do, because you're old and slow. And I said, well, no, nothing to do with that, because I'm not interested in the kiss. I'm interested in the journey. I'm interested in the, the hunt, the search, the failure, the focus, the submission, the rejection, the acceptance, the warmth, all those human emotions which we don't have anymore. And then when maybe you're allowed to kiss for what, half a second on a cheek, everything explodes. Everything explodes because everything is a light. Everything is aware. All your senses are raw. And then it's heaven on earth. And that, that's, that's the difference. And that's why I go to such extremes continually with analog cameras. And they get bigger and they get more cumbersome to make that experience richer and richer and richer and richer. And the richer you make it, the more you invest the more you learn about yourself and you learn about the people you visit, not in an anthropological way, but in a human way. It's all about emotion and about the heart. So when you cry, it's, I'm happy you cry because it resonates with you, the journey. So it's not a, it's not a document. It's not art. It's, it's, it's an emotional, subjective interpretation of what I feel when I've spent a month looking for that half a second kiss. And that's the climax. And that's, and that's the richest feeling you can ever have. It lasts very fleetingly, three times a year, if you're lucky. And that's that moment in there in the middle. But the whole of your life is based in trying to get there. And that's the thrill. And each time it gets, it gets sharper and sharper and sharper and sharper. And it's e- extremely exciting. Yeah, you and just... I need this world to be healthy and in balance to get me here. And then, but if I stay here, it becomes subjective and nobody knows what I'm experiencing. So I've got to come back. And every time in the middle, <gasps> that's what it's about. And that's yeah. where I, 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 I want to be. Yeah. You just kind of uh, answered the next question that I was going to ask you, because I wanted to ask you if there was any understanding that you could give to people or any misunderstanding that people have that you could take away that would really help somebody. But this is like already the ex- example that you gave is a, is a very good answer to that. But do you have anything, anything an, an, else? An, another, another misunderstanding, something yes. which I'm very, very uh, vocal about. When I first started doing what I did, and everybody said, well, Jimmy, who the fuck are you? You're nobody. Uh, you're not an anthropologist, ethnologist. You have no qualifications. You have no nothing. And these people who photograph, they don't look like that. 
They haven't looked like that. They never look like that. They don't exist. So this is fabricated. It's fake. It's photoshopped. You've paid them. All negative questions. Not everybody, a lot of negative questions. And I say, well, what this is, is let's have a look at the cover of Vogue magazine or the cover of Elle or the cover of Newsweek. You never question that. This is us. This is our world. This is our aspirational world. This is who we want to be or live or look like. We never question whether this is true or not. It's true after you've had a photographer in the studio. It's not on a daily basis how we look like. On a daily basis, on Saturday morning when we crawl out of bed after a party, we don't look anything like that, but we never question it. All I've done is mirrored and gone to them and given them the dignity, the time and the respect and the wealth and the representation to look like us when we feel at our best. And the shock is that when they look at their best and they've had the time and respect and it's all real, it hurts us because technically they have nothing. But the realization is they perhaps have everything. And that's the biggest sadness because we've been aspiring for this and maybe we've been going down the wrong path. And actually they have it all already. And that's the biggest misunderstanding. So that's why what I do is not journalism, uh, anthropology, ethnology, it's just human respect. No more so than we, we impose upon ourselves. But we never question it when it's about us. Okay. I'm going to ask you one last question. Mm -hmm. Have you uh, forgiven to people who hurt you when you were young? Good question. Uh, I've thought about it. Um, yes, because I understand what took them to that place. Um, when you live in... I've forgiven my parents because I now know what it is to be a parent myself. My father doesn't live. My mother's alive. She can't talk about it, but I know how complicated it is to be a parent. Uh, parents are fallible, so I have no animosity towards my parents. I'm not as close as I should be because I've always been away. What the priest did to me is what human... If you've got 400 priests in a building and a thousand children, in that 400, there are always going to be three or four who are isolated. They've lost all perspective, all objectivity, and they've got stuck. And they, are, they were perhaps, I believe, all the human beings were there for good intentions, but they got lost on the way. I think that's as human beings in the world in general. I would argue the majority of us are born with good intentions, but society changes us. Much the same as these priests were changed. They were locked up. They needed comfort. They needed warmth. They needed touch. Uh, they had ego and they, it evolved into abuse. But I don't believe they believe what they were doing was abuse. Uh, it was the worst abuse you could ever imagine. Um, but I don't believe it was, it was premeditated. They were ill. So, so forgiveness, perhaps, but it has nothing to do with a greater belief. It's just understanding human beings. I'm now 52. It's a complicated journey. And the mistakes I've made and the positions I've been in and the emotions I've felt, how hard you have to work with it. Uh, I'm not going to judge other people for their failures. Um, it was wrong, but I don't hold animosity. I don't hold animosity to anybody. I'm, I'm dealing with my own fallibility. Yeah. This is something that is so important because right now, especially mm. with all the politicians and businessmen and the different people in the world that everybody loves to hate because mm -hmm. there are people that are so mm -hmm. easy to hate. Mm -hmm. And we have this, again, this black and white mm -hmm. image that these are just bad people and they have no right to live mm -hmm. and we just, uh, should just get rid of them. Mm -hmm. But this is like, what would be the antidote to that? How can we just see them as fallible people who have made mistakes but who are not inherently if you, evil? If you look at, um, you, we were talking about religion a few minutes ago. Uh, if there's one religion I do resonate the most with is Buddhism. I'm not a Buddhist. You can't be a Buddhist unless you live it and breathe it 24-7. 
But the readings and the teachings of Buddhism is very profound and very beautiful. You look at how the, the, the Dalai Lama talks about the Chinese. The Chinese today are the biggest, you know, I'm not going to say what I think of them. And the Dalai Lama still peacefully respects and understands why they make the decisions they make and is forgiving in that process. And I believe he comes and always will be on a higher plane of wealth and understanding and human richness than any one of the Chinese in that process. Um, but yeah, it's, it is a, it's very easy, but it's an escape. It's very easy to, to come up with these conclusions oneself. You have to work very hard. It's very lonely. It's very easy to go, you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong, and blame everybody else for your failures or your inadequacy as a human being. Uh, my inadequacy is a beautiful story. I think it's beautiful. When I was in my early 20s, I came to Amsterdam. I came with my then wife, who I respect now, but we should never be married. But it's okay, we talk about it. We were trying to save each other. Uh, I was uh, feeling broken. I didn't believe I could ever be in a relationship. I didn't believe anybody would like me. To cut a long story short, I met my partner. She said, well, let's have children together. We'll give you a purpose. Um, I met at a distance a lady and I thought, well, if I was a valid human being and if I was good looking and an intelligent and successful and worthy, she would be the woman of my dreams. She's everything, but I'm nothing. I'm, I'm living shit. So don't even look at it. Don't even talk to it. Don't even put it into your mind. So I put it away. 25 years later, I met her and hey, Veda, Jimmy, yeah. You remember we sort of saw each other at a distance years ago. Yeah, yeah, hi, hi. And she turned around to me and she said, can I give you a secret? I said, well, she said, well, not a secret. Can I tell you something? She says, yeah, I was deeply in love with you. I'm going, deeply in love with me? And she says, yeah, but you just got married and I was afraid of your wife and everything. So I decided never to look at you. And, but I thought about you for many years because you represented for me what was finitely beautiful as a human being. And I saw you and I believed I could see you. And I was going, but isn't that sick? Because 25 years ago, I was on the verge of killing myself, thinking I was worthless. I thought I was, I wouldn't look, I didn't look in a mirror for 10 years. That's how bad I felt. So this self-indoctrination of self-loathing, self-hate, self-lack of worth, it's a personal thing. It's not anybody else's fault, it's your own process and how it's all self-indoctrinated. So no matter how bad I felt and how much I blamed everybody else for my bad feeling, Somebody else looked at me and saw me completely differently. And that's a terrifying thought 25 years later. And that for me was a massive lesson. And, and, and you know, the shock of my goodness me was self-inflicted. I didn't need to feel that way. I didn't need to feel that bad. I wanted to punish myself. And as a result of it, I made a number of decisions which were punishment. This is a very beautiful place to end, I think. Jim mm. Nelson, thank, thank you. you. Thank you very, very much. It was beautiful. Thank you. Well, thank you for the good questions. Nice conversation. Thank you for not asking me about cameras. <laughs> beautiful. Thank you. Thank you for your time.